Here's Dan Schulman, President and Chief Executive Officer at PayPal, on the discussion Prioritizing Small Business in Economic Recovery, sponsored by PayPal. This idea of how can we help our small business customers really rethink their entire strategy for how do they continue going forward when the world has shifted more and more towards digital is something that we're, I think, uniquely able to go and do. Listen to the entire discussion on WTOP.com. Search PayPal. Politics, power, and the people. From Washington, D.C., this is The Week on the Hill. This is the most consequential legislation that many of us will ever be a party to. Speaker Pelosi is throwing your tax dollars at Democrat cronies like a float captain throws beads at a Mardi Gras parade. On this vote, the yeas are 220, the nays are 211. The motion is adopted. President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief package will be touted by Democrats and continue to be criticized by Republicans in the coming weeks now that it's been signed into law. Its passage by Congress comes a year after the pandemic took hold in the United States. I'm WTOP's Mitchell Miller, and as part of WTOP's look at the pandemic a year later, I spoke recently with Maryland Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin. He's endured a tumultuous year that's included the suicide of his son Tommy and being at the center of a historic moment as the lead House manager in the impeachment trial of former President Trump. We began our conversation by going back to the outset of the outbreak of the coronavirus. My impression back then was one of absolute chaos, that there was no plan that had been put into place. We were dealing with the problem of massive shortages in masks and personal protective equipment for nurses and doctors and just uh, a scarcity of information about what was going on. My general impression is that the administration always kicked the can down the road and tried to delegate things to the states, which basically meant blaming governors and state governments for the lack of a nationally coordinated plan. And there was a lot of rampant uh, money-making and profiteering taking place at the federal level. And well, I thought it was chaos. With my colleague, Donna Shalala, who of course had been the secretary of HHS under President Clinton, we put together legislation. And the idea was that the federal government would coordinate the states in getting the testing out, getting the contact tracing out. And all of the states would come up with their plans on how to get back to work, get back to school safely. But nothing like that happened. And instead, you know, the federal government issued some general flabby guidelines and never really had a coherent nationwide plan for beating the disease, which is why we ended up number one in COVID-19 case count, number one in COVID-19 death count. Now, as you well know, everybody has had incredible personal stories. And if you don't mind, I'd like to talk a little bit about your personal story Uh, This past year has been so difficult for so many people, but I can't imagine an individual who has gone through more than you have individually. I'd like to, as everyone has, extend my condolences for your son, Tommy. Everybody on behalf of WTOP would like to do that. But related to the latter part of the year, when you lost your son, and then just within a week, which is just 
unbelievable to consider. We had the January 6th insurrection with your daughter and son-in-law there. Can you take us back to what that week was like for you and how you and your family, which I know you have a very strong family, how you were able to cope to get through that period? Well, first of all, thank you for your condolences, Mitchell, and um, to all my friends at WTOP who've been so kind. Um, it was and has been and remains a, a devastating thing for our family to lose our precious Tommy, uh, our middle child, who was uh, 25. He was about to turn 26 years old in January. He was a law student at Harvard. And he was just a, a beautiful, sparkling soul in a, in a world full of brokenness. And he had great love in his heart and he had great compassion and he was always the life of the party and everybody wanted to be around him. He was so funny and he was so filled with mirth and uh, joy. Um, and uh, he was a passionate vegan um, because he felt intensely the suffering of all human beings and all living beings. And um, he wrote lots of poetry and he did it as slam poetry, you know, and he would get up and he would perform it. And he had uh, multiple poems answering the question, why are you a vegan? And he would talk about different dimensions of his commitment to, you know, feeling the, the suffering of animals and, um, the need of animals to live their own lives, you know? And um, so he, he had some extraordinary poetry. We're in the process of collecting a whole bunch of his essays. Our daughters are going to edit a collection of his work on that. So we lost him on the last day of 2020, that terrible, wretched year um, when we lost hundreds of thousands of people. We laid him to rest on January the 5th. And uh, on the next day, our daughters were home along with a lot of other family, cousins, nieces, nephews, uncles and aunts and stuff. And, uh, but our youngest daughter, Tabitha, said to me, Daddy, don't go to work because uh, it was my first day going back. And I said, I've got to. Um, constitutionally, we have to. We're going to count the electoral college votes. Um, and I said, why don't you just come with me? So she decided to come and my son-in-law, Hank, who's married to our other daughter, Hannah, he decided to come as well to see the peaceful transfer of power. Um, and I was one of the people that Speaker Pelosi had asked to answer what we knew were going to be objections, you know, just spoken nonviolent objections to the acceptance of electoral college votes from Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, some other states. And so uh, we were there. Uh, Steny Hoyer had allowed allowed me to use his office so I could have family members there. And lots of people were coming to give us a hug. Both Democrats and Republicans were coming to, to say how sorry they were about the loss of Tommy. And then when the proceeding began at one o'clock to receive the Electoral College votes, I went in. Tabitha and Hank were up in the gallery. and. Um, uh, I spoke, I invoked Abraham Lincoln, actually, from his famous Lyceum speech, where he said that if destruction and uh, dissolution ever come to America, it will not be from abroad, it will be because of 
threats from within. It will be our own internal conflict and turmoil that would dissolve the union. Those were some prescient words that Honest Abe spoke. We, you know, began to debate Arizona and we began to debate the integrity of the election. After I spoke, Tabitha and Hank went back to Steny Hoyer's office. And shortly thereafter is when we began to receive reports that there had been a breach in security in the Capitol and the Capitol was being overrun. And then within a matter of uh, minutes, um, uh, we heard the sound of a battering ram at our door, like people were taking like huge logs or something and um, banging them against the door to get in. Capitol officers entered with their guns drawn. Our new chaplain conducted a prayer. People were calling their wives and husbands to say goodbye. Members were removing their congressional pins so they wouldn't be identified. And of course, I was scrambling to figure out what was happening with Tabitha. And Hank, my chief of staff, Julie Tagan, was in the office with them. And I told her to guard them with her life. And she did. She found uh, a fire pick in the fireplace and she held it up over the door. They had locked the door. They had barricaded themselves in with all the furniture and the kids were hiding under the desk and they were calling people and saying their goodbyes because they thought that everybody was going to die. We were all evacuated from the floor. I wasn't able to get them at that that point, which of course panicked me, but I kept calling our contacts in the Capitol Police and the Speaker's office. And about an hour later, they were able to get Tabitha and Hank out. And then, you know, I reported our conversation as part of the impeachment trial, but we were very relieved, um, very tearful to be reunited. And that night, I had to stay. You remember, we were here till like 3.30 or 4 in the morning because we were adamant about going back in. But I sent them home earlier and I said to Tabitha that I promised that the next time she came back to the Capitol, it would not be like this again. And she said, Dad, I don't want to come back to the Capitol. As a constitutional scholar and somebody who is taught and knows the Constitution as well as anyone, moving forward, what was it like for you to pour everything into the impeachment proceedings? Was that in some ways helpful to you in terms of dealing with everything that you had dealt with over the past week plus? Or did you at one point feel like it was sort of overwhelming as it might've felt for many of us? No, I think it was um, very helpful to me. I mean, I I had a sense of uh, great purpose and commitment to see it through. I think Sarah and the girls and our whole family were behind me in doing that. And the way I felt was that we had lost what was most precious to us in 2020, our son Tommy, and we were not going to lose our constitution and our country in 2021. I was going to stand and fight and throw everything that I had into it. And uh, we wanted to make clear to the country what high crimes and misdemeanors were and why this was clearly an impeachable event and why this was the worst crime ever committed by a president of the United States against the republic. I mean, nothing even comes close to the incitement of a violent mob to attack Congress and the counting of electoral college votes in order to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. 
So that was the story that we told. I had a remarkable team of impeachment managers. We were, in, in some sense, saved by the fact that the president asked for more time for a couple more weeks to get ready. And that allowed us to have a couple more weeks to get ready. And that was time that I really did need, I think, emotionally and psychologically to focus. I was so just inundated in grief and agony for the first several weeks. And it's very blurry to me, that period. But more and more, I came out of it and I began to focus on what needed to be done. And the feeling I have emotionally is just missing Tommy terribly, terribly all the time. But at least not being in a state of kind of mental agony. Right, because you had such a focused purpose at that time and went through everything, uh, which is just really kind of hard to believe that that was actually the second impeachment proceeding in a year. And now here we are in the early part of 2021. There's still fencing around the Capitol, as you know, razor wire. What are your thoughts about whether or not this 9-11 type commission is actually going to come together? And uh, how strongly do you feel that it should come together to investigate? Well, I feel very strongly that we do it. We need to have a bipartisan or really multipartisan or nonpartisan nationwide commission to examine the events of January 6th and the causes of it. We've seen domestic violent extremism become the number one terror threat in the country. That's according to the Department of Homeland Security under President Trump. They even admitted to that at the you know, very end, that this was the worst terror threat that we faced. That threat has not gone away. And the problem with the ambiguous verdict in the Senate trial is that there are people who are in public office who continue to send very mixed signals about January 6th and violent insurrection and domestic violent extremism. 57 of 43 is a pretty resounding defeat for the president. And we it was the strongest bipartisan conviction vote in U.S. history. There have only been four impeachments, you know, Andrew Johnson, Bill Clinton, the first Trump impeachment, and this one. This was by far the most bipartisan with 10 Republicans joining with uh, all the Democrats on the House side and seven Republicans joining us on the Senate side. And those Republicans being from all over the country, New England, mid-Atlantic, the South, the Midwest, the West, Alaska, you know, all over. But Trump beat the constitutional spread, the two-thirds requirement for an actual conviction. So it's in sort of this ambiguous place where it was a majority, but not the two-thirds supermajority. And we still don't have that categorical decisive break from the Proud Boys and the three presenters and, you know, the Oath Keepers, because Donald Trump continues to pursue a no enemies to his right policy. And so many Republicans continue to give him aid and comfort in that posture. So that's a real problem for the country. And I do think it's a problem also for the GOP. You know, that is not how the Republican Party started under Abraham Lincoln. I mean, he he began by denouncing the know-nothings and racism and nativism, and he began by denouncing mob violence against the Black population and against abolitionists and so on. And, you know, now here we are 150 years later, and the Republican Party suddenly is playing footsie with 
these violent, racist, extremist elements of our politics. And lastly, I just wanted to ask you, and you touched on this, about your thoughts, the president's COVID relief plan, obviously a big legislative victory this week with this vote by the House. For people who have, like yourself, gone through some extremely difficult times over the past year, I know that generally you are an optimistic person. What are your thoughts now as we move forward into 2021? I feel great about where we're going, Mitchell. I mean, that $1.9 trillion package is going to be a literal and a metaphorical shot in the arm for America. You know, we're going to get everybody vaccinated. We're going to invest in science. We're going to put the kids back in school by the fall. Uh, we're going to get food in people's refrigerators and cupboards. There's a lot of hungry people out there. We're going to put people back in jobs. So I'm excited about that. I wish it had been totally bipartisan, but it in fact is bipartisan in the sense that the vast majority of the public supports it, but we do have that partisanship problem in Congress in Washington. All right. Well, we'll leave it there and hope that 2021 is a lot better than 2020. I want to thank you, Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin, for joining us on WTOP. We really appreciate it. And I appreciate your doing this, uh, Mitchell. I really do. Thank you. I'm WTOP's Mitchell Miller, and this is The Week on the Hill. 